0: It's 9.30, so let us begin. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. We've been looking over the last few weeks at Jesus' power displayed in his miracles. In the New Testament, Jesus has demonstrated his power over nature, over disease, and even over death. And though we didn't get to look at it, Jesus also displays his power over demons, too. Cast out whole legions of them with a word though we didn't really get to look at that in our lessons. But all these miracles that are recorded in the Gospels are recorded for a reason. And what is that main reason? Why are all these miracles recorded about Christ? Yeah, so we would understand who he is. This is not merely showing us an example or showing him to be a nice person This is to demonstrate that he is the Messiah and Son of God. He's displaying divine power and authority. And if Jesus is truly a Messiah, what must man do in response to that revelation? Exactly. He must repent and believe. That's why these Gospels were written. That's why these miracles were recorded. So that we might believe in Jesus. This is the Bible's central message of salvation. Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God and you must believe in order to be saved and to receive eternal life. Now today we're going to look at those same core salvation truths but from another angle as we consider food. Now I've always found that it's very easy to talk to people about food. What, you know, what are your favorite foods? What's it like to eat certain foods? Where are the best restaurants? What kind of foods have you made at home lately? And it's easy to talk about food because all of us eat food, right? I mean, does anybody not eat food? Even if you eat very little, we all eat. But think with me for a moment. Why do we eat food? We need nourishment in order to what? Yeah, we we need it to live. We need the strengthening to do work, but ultimately we need food so that we can live. It's true sometimes that we do eat simply because food tastes good, but ultimately at a basic level, it's for survival. Without food, we cannot continue to function. Without food, we die. We all need food, and we all need a fair amount of or and a fair amount of our daily lives is devoted to obtaining preparing, and eating food. This really has been one of main's, man's main tasks since the fall, even though man ate before the fall. Since the fall, man must work by the sweat of his brow to obtain food from the ground so that man can continue to eat and live. And this is an unending task. Have you ever eaten such a large and delicious meal that you felt like... You would never need to eat again. Sure, many of us have had that happen. But what you notice happens, even after that incredibly large meal, what happens about five or six hours later? You get hungry again. (laughs) No matter what we eat, how much we eat, we always get hungry again. No food can satisfy us once and for all. We have to keep working so that we can continue to eat and continue to live. But imagine that you met someone who told you that he had a special food that once you ate it, you would never need to eat again. Now you might say, but I like tasting different foods. Well, okay, maybe you could continue to eat if you wanted, but with this special food, you would never need to eat again. Think about how much money you could save and time and how much less work you would need to do if you didn't have to eat. And what if the same person told you that not only will this food make it so that you don't need to eat, but this food will actually give you eternal life? Who wouldn't want such an amazing food? But we might say, that's impossible. No such food exists. Who could seriously claim to have a food That would make it so that you never hungered again. Well, actually, there is someone who offered and still offers this kind of food. He is the Lord Jesus. And let's see how he explains this offer in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Please open your Bibles to John, chapter 6, and we're going to start investigating We're going to be looking at the whole chapter of John today, uh, John chapter 6, but let's orient ourselves to the context and where we are in Jesus' ministry before we read. This is probably the third year in Jesus' three and a half year ministry, and though Jesus is continuing to teach and do miracles, and he has some following, he's encountering more and more rejection from his people, the Jews. In John chapter 5, Jesus was just in Jerusalem for one of the holy feasts and he healed a paralytic man on the Sabbath. This healing caused an uproar among the Jews, but Jesus confronted the Jews over their unbelief. Jesus told the Jews that the reason they refused to believe in him and refused to acknowledge the miracles proving who he is is that they truly do not believe the Father or the scriptures. And this rebuke would have been quite offensive to the self-righteous Jews. So this is what has taken place just before John chapter 6. John 6.1 takes us to a time some time later. It could have been a long time, at least several months after the events in John chapter 5. Now let's start our investigation of this chapter by looking first at just verses 1 to 15. Here we see a miracle occur that's going to provide an important backdrop for the rest of John 6. So please follow along with me as I start reading John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore... Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, And filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. All right, let's start our analysis of this passage with basic observations. This passage describes the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. The other Gospels give us specific information on Jesus' location. Jesus has gone from the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee to the northeast northeast side, to Bethsaida. John's Gospel, though, gives us an additional timing detail. It says the Passover is near. How how near, we don't know. But remember that Jewish men were required to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. Though we're pretty far from Jerusalem in this passage, we're on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Nevertheless, we see a large crowd coming to Jesus. And verse 2 tells us why. Because of Jesus' signs and his healing miracles. Now note, Jesus sits with his disciples at the top of a mountain, but how many people are with him? And the passage says about 5,000 men. But other Gospels tell us that there are, men, that there are women and children here too. A reasonable estimate for the total number of people then would be about 20,000. 20,000 people coming to see Jesus, hear Jesus, and be with Jesus during this miracle. Note Jesus' question about obtaining bread that he gives to Philip. Why this question? Again, the text tells us text tells us that Jesus was testing Philip, and Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Philip's estimate is that spending 200 denarii would give everyone in the crowd only a little bit of bread. How much is a denarius? It's an average daily wage. Yeah, if you work all day, you'll get a denarius. So 200 denarius, that's almost about two-thirds of a year of, uh, of wages. That's a lot of money. And that's not even to satisfy everybody. That's just to give everybody a little bit to eat. That's Philip's estimate. Andrew mentions that a boy has five loaves or five kind of like mini, mini loaves, little buns, five loaves and two fish. And apparently this boy is willing to share. I don't think he just took it from the boy. But Andrew says, what are these among so many? That is to say, what good will having this Small amount of food do. Jesus though has the crowd sit in the grass. He gives thanks for the small amount of food, and then he gives food to the disciples to distribute to the crowd. And no one would notice how much food is given out. There's enough to satisfy each person as much as that person wanted, and there are even leftovers. Jesus commands the disciples to gather up the leftovers, and they fill twelve baskets. The crowd realizes that Jesus has performed a sign. What's another word that we could use for sign here? A miracle, exactly. Sign, miracle, think of those being the same thing. But sign emphasizes that this is to demonstrate something about Jesus. So they see this sign and note their conclusion. This is the prophet who was to come into the world. Now, prophet might be capitalized in your Bibles, where does the Old Testament talk about a special prophet who is to come? That's right, Deuteronomy. It's possible that some of the crowd might be thinking of the passage from Isaiah and Malachi talking about Elijah coming, but there was an even earlier prophecy that uses the term prophet itself from Deuteronomy 18.15 where it says, Deuteronomy 18.15, <clears throat> Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your countrymen you shall listen to him that was moses speaking he says a prophet like me is going to come and so though there are different understandings about who the messiah is what exactly he would be in israel many equated the prophet to be the messiah some people saw the prophet as different from the messiah kind of like two messiahs but certainly And there are many who saw the prophet to be the Messiah. And note that when they make this realization, this is a prophet, what do they want to do? They want to make Jesus king They want to force Jesus to become king. But Jesus, in response, what does he do? Does he welcome their coronation? No, he withdraws. He withdraws by himself alone. So with these observations, let's now go to the next step and consider interpretation. How did Jesus feed so many people? I'm sorry, can you say that again? That's right. He created food out of nothing by multiplying what was there or just creating more. He miraculously provided this food. And the crowd realized it was miraculous, did they not? Because they referred to what Jesus did as a sign. There's no natural way that five small loaves and two fish could have satisfied so many people and resulted in so many leftovers. This is not an account of people in the crowd sharing their lunches. This is a display of divine power from Jesus. Another question. In Philip's and Andrew's responses to Jesus regarding feeding the people, What crucial fact did these two disciples forget? Jesus says, essentially, how are we going to feed all these people? And they say, there's no way we could buy enough food. What are they forgetting? Exactly. They forget who Jesus was. What has he been displaying this whole time? He is the Messiah with power and compassion. That's why it says that Jesus tested him. Do you have faith in me? Do you remember what I can do? And apparently not. They don't demonstrate much faith in Jesus here. And they say, this looks like an impossible situation. Another question. Why did Jesus have the disciples gather the the leftovers? I heard two different answers, Um, but uh, the one I heard, yes, is uh, correct. To make the extent of the miracle clear, it's only after that he gathers up the basketfuls that it says the crowd realized that he had performed this sign. It made it quite clear that something supernatural has happened. He went with these five small loaves and two fish, and now you have 12 baskets full. Perhaps he may have used this food later. Maybe that was the disciples' next meal. He does say it so that nothing will be wasted, but it seems to be the overriding reason is, is to show what really happened. This was a miracle. What does this miracle prove then? Yes, yeah, Steve. Mm. Yeah, this is a display of Jesus' divine power. And you can see even the creator aspect of Jesus. He's creating this bread. Out of, or, well, he is, you could say, maybe multiplying bread, but there's no baking, there's no gathering of flour. He's just creating it there. And it also is a demonstration of his compassion. It's not particularly highlighted in, in this passage, though we might infer it. Certainly, the other Gospels mention that he had compassion on the people when he saw them gathered to him, and he wanted them to have some food. And all this, ultimately, is not just power and compassion. It's pointing out, as Steve said, that Jesus is God. He's Messiah and God. And the people recognize this, or at least somewhat. They recognize that the miracle proved Jesus' Messiahship. They call him the prophet. They're ready to make him king. But then, why does Jesus withdraw from them? If Jesus came as the Messiah, and he wants the people to realize that he's the Messiah, it seems like the people do realize he's the Messiah, so then why doesn't he let them make him king? yeah yeah i think both those things are correct clearly there's something wrong about the reason why or the method how they want to make him king because jesus will not go along with it they seem to want to make him king for the wrong reasons remember While expectations among the Jews, as I said, about what the Messiah would be and what he would do differed somewhat. The overriding expectations were that the Messiah would lead Israel into victory against her enemies, her political enemies, and usher in a kingdom of peace, happiness, and prosperity. Now, does the Old Testament promise that the Messiah will do these things? It does, actually. It does say that Messiah will come. He will destroy Israel's enemies. He will establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness and prosperity, far greater prosperity than has ever been known. But what does the Old Testament also promise that the Messiah will do that the people are ignoring? Yes, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. They did not recognize or accept that the Messiah actually had to suffer and die. And even on behalf of his people, what else were they neglecting to remember about Messiah or his kingdom? Say that again. He judges sin. Is that what you said? Yes. He did. He doesn't come just to save, but he also comes to judge. He also comes to purify. If you remember our, our lessons from Malachi, it talks about, "Whoa, it's going to be fierce when when uh, when God comes, when the kingdom comes. There's going to be a judgment and purification." There's also before the kingdom comes, there's got to be repentance in Israel. The people need to be changed. He has to suffer and die, and he also has to atone for the sins of his people. We go back to Isaiah Isaiah 53. He has to take upon himself their transgressions and by his wound heal his people. All these things are not being brought into the mind of the people. They want a Messiah only of a certain type. And this has been Israel's ongoing mistake. They've wanted the blessings of God's kingdom and Messiah without the repentance or the atonement that God requires. And this is going to become even clearer as we go through our passage. And for this reason, Jesus will not accept them wanting to make him king. But what does the rest of the passage say? Well, right after verse 15, there's a little interlude where the disciples cross the Sea of Galilee again. This is actually where we hear John's account of Jesus walking on the water. This is uh, they're actually traveling back to Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. We've already looked at this account in a different gospel so we're not going to go back through it now but do remember this episode was another display of jesus power his messiahship and deity but also further evidence of the lack of faith in the disciples peter does go out on the water there's a a small amount of faith there but he ultimately doubts jesus and starts to sink of course everyone was terrified when they saw jesus So the disciples are still lacking in faith, still lacking in understanding when Jesus goes to the other side. So we're going to skip verses 16 to 21, and we're going to resume the narrative in verse 22. This is the main part of the passage. We're going to read the whole thing from verse 22 down to verse 71. It's a long section, but pay attention to how what has just happened with the feeding of the 20,000 to inform what Jesus says next. So... Go down to verse 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to internal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, Has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do, so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue, as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. For there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Now this is a rich section of scripture that we could spend several weeks dissecting. But with the time we have today, let's just try and observe the main details and main points. Jesus is now in the synagogue at Capernaum, and the crowd catches up with him for some Q&A. Notice there's a lot of back and forth here, plenty of dialogue, crowds asking questions or saying things, and Jesus is giving answers. Now, we're going to paraphrase this dialogue and make some observations as we go. First question, how'd you get here, Jesus? Jesus doesn't actually answer that question. Rather, answer one from Jesus... You're not seeking me because of my miraculous signs, but because I fed you. And answer two, don't work for food that perishes. Work for the food that lasts unto eternal life, which I, the Son of Man, will give to you. Now they have another question. Question, you mentioned work. What work should we do so that we can work the works of God? Answer from Jesus, your work is simply to believe that God the one God sent, which is me. Question, what sign miracle will you do so that we can believe in you? Our forefathers ate miraculous manna from heaven under the prophet Moses. Pause for a second here. What's odd about this request from the Jews for a sign so that they can believe in Jesus? They just saw one. In fact, they've been seeing it throughout his whole ministry. You want another sign? didn't you just see how I multiplied bread? But what's the difference between what Jesus just did and what they mention about the experience of Israel in the wilderness? Can you say that again? Exactly. Jesus did a great miracle, but it was only one time. Israel in the wilderness, they had manna every day, or, you know, ongoing. We're looking for that kind of sign. But Jesus says to them, answer one, Moses doesn't give you bread from heaven. God, my father, does. And answer two, the true bread has already come down to you from heaven, and it gives life to the world. To this, The Jews respond, sounds great. Please give us this bread all the time. By the way, does this situation sound familiar? Where else did Jesus offer someone special sustenance and the person said, please give me that? Exactly, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, which is actually recorded in the Gospel of John. Go back to John chapter four and you would see it. You don't actually have to go back to it. I'll I'll just read it to you. John 4, verses 13 to 15. It says, Jesus answered her and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Speaking of the water at the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. So the crowd says give us this bread we want it and jesus says to them three different answers here answer one i am the bread of life if you come to me you will not hunger and if you believe in me you will never thirst now note what jesus says there he's making a connection between eating and drinking and belief note that connection answer two though he says you have seen me But you still don't believe in me? And answer three, nevertheless, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. I came to gather those people, and I will never lose them. All who look to me and believe in me will have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. The crowd did not like this answer, and they began to grumble. Question How can he call himself the bread from heaven? If we already know his common earthly parents, Jesus says in response, answer one, don't grumble. All that the father draws and teaches will come to me. Answer two, he who believes in me has eternal life. Answer three, I am the bread of life, superior to the bread the Israelites ate in the wilderness. Those who ate that bread eventually died. But if you eat of me, you will live forever. Answer four, the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. It is my body. I give my body for the life of the world. In response to this, the crowd begins to argue, not merely grumble. They say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? But Jesus takes it even further. Answer one, you will have no life in yourselves unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Hmm. Well, why would the phrase drink my blood have been particularly repulsive to the Jews? They were forbidden to eat or drink blood. Back in the law of Moses, they could eat meat, but never with the blood. Actually, it goes back to Noah when he comes out from the ark. You were never to eat something with the blood. With what is blood associated almost always associated in the Bible. Sacrifice, what else? Life, that, where that law is instituted about not eating blood, it says because there's life in the blood. So there's life, sacrifice, and what else? Okay, you're thinking a little bit about atonement. But certainly when we talk about blood, usually you see blood because what's just happened? Someone's died. <laughs> There's a lot of shedding of blood in the Bible. There's a lot of pouring of blood and the sacrifice, all those types of things. That's because something died. Blood is associated with death. If you see someone's blood, that is not a good thing. You can't be like, oh, life. No, no, no. That's the sign of death. Or danger of death. But Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then he says, answer two, if you eat my flesh and blood, you will remain in me, you'll abide in me, and I will abide in you. And then he says, answer three, whoever eats me will live forever because of me. Now, note who reacts next to Jesus. It's not the crowd. It's not the Jews. But it's actually Jesus' disciples, those who are his more committed followers. Even they start grumbling after they hear Jesus make those declarations. And they ask a question. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus responds to his disciples. Answer one. You may think this teaching is hard, but how would you react if you saw me ascending back into heaven? Answer two. The flesh doesn't give life. The spirit does. And my words are spirit and life. Answer three, but some of you don't believe. Answer four, no one can come to me unless God has granted him to do so. So you may notice there are certain ideas that keep on getting repeated in this passage. We have this uh, continuous declaration that Jesus is the bread of life and you must eat that bread to obtain eternal life. You also see that Jesus is the one in whom you must believe in order to have eternal life. And also this continuous declaration that all those that the Father draws will believe in Jesus, but the others do not believe because the Father is not drawing them. What's the result of all this dialogue? Well, many of Jesus' committed followers leave him. We're not really told what the crowd does, but we're told that many of his disciples leave him. And so Jesus asks the 12, if they too want to go away, but Peter answers for them all. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Now, isn't that great? What loyal disciples, willing to stick with Jesus through thick and thin, willing to accept even Jesus' difficult and unpopular teaching. They've chosen Jesus, and they're sticking with him. What great guys. But notice what Jesus says. Did I not choose you? That's a rhetorical question. Jesus is really just saying to them, yes, you have chosen me, but more important for you to understand is that I chose you 12, even though I know one of you Is the devil. And the passage concludes by making clear what Jesus meant. Jesus knew that Judas Iscariot would betray him. Let's ask some interpretation questions again now that we've made these observations. From a strictly outward perspective, how effective is Jesus as a preacher and evangelist here? Certainly not secret sensitive. How successful was he? from an outward perspective. Yeah, this is terrible. This is a terrible evangelistic outing, at least from the outside. It's like many people might come to Jesus today, people who have their ideas and techniques, and they say, Jesus, how could you mess this up? You've got the whole crowd following you. They love your miracles. They're willing to listen to you, but you only manage to... You not only manage to drive away the crowds, but you even lose many of the disciples you already had. Talk about a fail. Jesus, it's like you were trying to drive people away with what you said and what you taught. How could you mess up so badly? Well, despite this exodus of people, how could we characterize Jesus' attitude toward the people's rejection? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, it's remarkable, right? He seems totally unfazed, totally confident and sovereign. Jesus is not afraid to tell the people repeatedly, the reason you don't accept what I'm saying is because the Father is not drawing you. If you were ones who actually listened to God's truth, you would accept my words. Those who hear God will come to me and stay with me. And Jesus' sovereignty is emphasized again at the end of the passage. He says, I chose you 12 disciples, even Judas. I know one of you is a devil. So we see Jesus is totally confident and even sovereign. Though the Jews were still seeking Jesus, what were they failing to understand or accept about themselves and about Jesus? Consider some of the things they say in this dialogue. What are they, what basics of salvation or basics about Jesus? Are they still not accepting? That's right. uh, Can you say the whole thing again? There's certainly, they don't go all the way with their understanding of Jesus. They may have recognized kind of like the the crowd did before. Oh, this is the prophet. This is the Messiah. But they're not willing to accept everything that the Messiah is supposed to be. And when Jesus claims to come down from heaven, they bristle at that. They think he's just a man. How can he say he's come down from heaven? What else are they still failing to understand or accept? Yeah, they're not willing to acknowledge their own need for a savior. They refuse to see themselves as sinful people. They're still trying to work. They're still trying to work for God's favor. What shall we do so that we can work the works of God? Along with this, Oh, so they not only see themselves as they don't see themselves as sinful and need of a savior, they still think that they can work for God's favor. They think Jesus is just a man. They still think the Messiah's mission is to fulfill their own desires and bring about their own prosperity. Ultimately, their minds are still on the perishing things of the world. And it's for these same reasons that Jesus would not let them make him king. They still wanted a Messiah according to their own desires. We, another question, we began to allude to this answer before, but by asking for a sign and comparing Jesus to Moses in the wilderness, what were the Jews showing that they expected Jesus to do? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. It's pretty cool how you multiplied this bread, but what what do you need to do in order for us to believe in you? It's got to keep on doing it. Keep giving us bread. you got to outdo Moses or at least do the same thing that he did. Of course Jesus clarifies for them that wasn't Moses who did that. it was God. And God is doing something else now. Now there's a lot of comparison between... Physical bread, even the man in the wilderness, and Jesus as the bread of life. What are the differences? What's the difference between physical bread and Jesus as the bread of life? Exactly. Physical bread sustains momentarily. Jesus sustains forever. What else? Well, I'll repeat your comment. One you can see and one you can't. Though they did see Jesus. He had come and been made manifest to them. So even though they could see physical bread, in a sense, they could see spiritual bread too. What else, Rob? Yeah, physical bread can only deal with physical nourishment. You say the words of Christ can nourish you in a spiritual way. Though we should note, it is true in a sense that the words of Christ are like bread, spirit, and life. Jesus goes beyond his words here, and he says, I am. I am the nourishment. I am the bread. But you're right, that its it goes beyond physical nourishment. You could highlight some other differences based on what's given in the passage. So as we said, physical bread sustains momentarily. Jesus sustains forever. Those who eat physical bread still die, but those that eat Jesus never die. Physical bread gives life in this world while Jesus gives life in this world and the next. Those that eat physical bread get hungry again. Those that eat Jesus never hunger or thirst again. Physical bread is digested and the nutrients taken into the body while the waste is excreted. But Jesus not only becomes one with the person who eats him, but that person also becomes one with Jesus. He abides in them, they abide in him. So the bread of life brings a mysterious unity that physical bread does not. All these are highlighted in our passage. Now, what does it mean to eat Jesus as the bread of life? All right, so then you're going back a little bit to what distinguishes Jesus as the bread of life. He is the one that can fill your soul. He's the one that can nourish you in a much more profound way. But what does it mean to eat Jesus? Roy, I think I saw your hand. right yeah so jesus is using a figure he's using a comparison to get their minds away from physical food to what's truly important which is believing in him believe in me we noted the connection between eating and drinking and belief throughout the passage he keeps on calling the people to believe it says and he points out to them that they are not believing eating here is just another is a figurative way to describe belief but by using that term he's Contrasting what they are focusing on with what they should be focusing on. This is helpful because it shows us that this this text is not about the necessity of the Eucharist or communion for one's spiritual health or salvation. This is about faith in Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior, the giver of eternal life. Eating is a metaphor for faith. Now, Jesus does say something that may have been a little bit confusing here. He says, The work of God is that you believe. Does belief in Jesus then count as a good work before God? Steve. Okay, I think I see what you're saying that the work of God is not actually something that you do, even though it is a work, it's actually the work that God does. And is manifest in your belief. Is that what you're saying? Okay, Caleb, what are you gonna say? Yeah, I I think I would agree with what you're saying, Caleb. He's using the term actually to point out that they can do nothing. He's saying he's using the term work in really an ironic way. Though there may be a little bit of what you were talking about, Steve, in terms of God is the one who really does the work. But we should note, though Jesus calls belief a work here, the New Testament does not refer to belief in that way. His point, Jesus' point, appears to be ironic. You Jews are so concerned about what work God requires from you for salvation, but the real work that you need is not a work at all, but an acknowledgement of your inability to work for your salvation and your need to accept God's special provision and work, his son, the bread of life. So belief itself is not something that we can bring before God and boast before God and say, I did this. No, it's, You don't have any good works to bring before God, not even your own belief. You are required to believe. But as Steve said, that really comes from God itself. Now, to come back to a little bit what we're saying about eating Jesus, if eating Jesus is tantamount to soul-saving belief in Jesus, then what does it mean to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood? We might feel tempted to make a connection to the Lord's Supper here, to the bread and the wine. But the Lord's Supper is not in this context. Passion Week doesn't take place for another six chapters in John. And even there, John doesn't really actually have anything to say about the food or drink of the Passover or the Lord's Lord's Supper. Now, it's true, verse 4 does mention the Passover before Jesus feeds the 5,000. But the emphasis in this passage is on the need for belief in Jesus, not belief in the Eucharist or the necessity of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper for spiritual well-being. So why this talk of flesh and blood? Why did Jesus say you must eat his flesh and drink his blood? There are at least two aspects to the answer to that. One aspect is total identification. Flesh and blood represent all of a person's physical body. Do they not? The flesh is the solid part. The blood is the liquid part. In fact, if you look at the phrase flesh and blood as used in the New Testament, it's used to denote humanity what it means to be human. If you're human, you consist of flesh and blood. That's your whole body. Therefore, to take in Jesus' flesh and blood is to take in everything that he is, to fully believe in Jesus, and to identify with all of his words, actions, and being. There's no going halfway with Jesus. You're either totally his disciple, or you aren't his disciple at all. You either totally believe in him, or you don't really believe at all. But there's an additional aspect to this phrase, total identification on the one hand, but notice Jesus says that he will give his flesh for the life of the world. And he will also give his blood. This then is a figurative way for Jesus to refer to. And I think Roy was saying this earlier to refer to his sacrificial death on man's behalf. And truly, These same things are represented in the Passover meal. Think about what Jesus says. This is my body, which is given for you. And this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. It is not merely Jesus' life that gives his disciples eternal salvation, but it is also his death. The father had to have a fitting sacrifice for sin, so Jesus had to give both his flesh and his blood. Therefore, if anyone is going to be a true disciple of Jesus, and if he's going to embrace everything that Jesus is, that person must also embrace Jesus as the suffering servant, the necessary atonement, the dying Messiah. In this way, the true disciple of Jesus will eat Jesus' flesh and drink Jesus' blood. If you, uh, or I should say this, you do not truly embrace Jesus, If you see him only as a great teacher or a genie to grant you all your wishes, you must believe in him as the holy sin bearer, the Lamb of God. And now did the Jews understand this figurative expression from Jesus? Well, perhaps some of them did. Jesus increasingly spoke in parables in the face of unbelief during his ministry. Parables were enlightening and instructive to those who believed in Jesus, but they were concealing and confusing to those who did not believe. So perhaps Jesus is using a parabolic expression, knowing that it would conceal to some and reveal to others. However, the figure, this repulsive figure of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood, really is appropriate considering what he's actually talking about. Just as Jews would have felt revulsion at the idea of consuming blood or even eating a human being, so also many Jews would have felt contempt and revulsion for a Messiah who suffered and a Messiah who died on behalf of sinners. It's not the kind of Messiah they signed up for. They want a strong, conquering, victorious Messiah, not some humiliated, mocked, and murdered Messiah. We holy Jews, they might say, we holy Jews don't need someone to rescue us from sin. We need someone to rescue us from poverty and from Rome. Whatever the Jews made of Jesus' statement, and perhaps some of them deliberately misunderstood, they did recognize clearly that Jesus was not the Messiah they were looking for, and therefore many left him. Now, I should also mention, if this passage is not about the Lord's Supper, then what's the connection to the Lord's Supper? The memorial of the Lord's Supper is symbolic of many of the same realities described in this passage. When we eat the bread symbolizing Christ's body and drink the grape juice symbolizing Christ's blood, we too are identifying with the Lord in a complete way. We proclaim, I have totally taken in Jesus and have become united with him. I proclaim that his death was necessary to cover my sin, but I also proclaim he was victorious over death and that one day I will sit at the banquet with him in his coming kingdom. You see, both the Lord's Supper and what we see here in John 6 are describing core realities of Jesus' salvation work. Both are presenting figures of Christ's death and believers identifying in faith with Jesus. To say it another way, John 6 is not describing the Lord's Supper, but it is describing the same salvation reality that the Lord's Supper also describes and signifies. And because the reality is the same, the figures are similar. But why all this? Why did John record this passage for his original audience and ultimately for us? Well, first, it directs the hearers for their need to believe in Jesus. Stop working for the bread which perishes and take hold of the bread of life from heaven. Embrace Jesus totally, believe in him, and you will have everlasting life. You won't need anything else. Jesus is enough. But second, this passage explains why so many, especially among the Jews, do not believe in Jesus. He's not what they're looking for. They're still living for the world. They're still looking for a God and a Messiah according to their own image and desires. That's why the Jews rejected Jesus. That's why people still reject him today. You wouldn't think that the Jews, so privileged by God and chosen by God, would so violently and obviously reject Jesus, and even his followers, but they did. But it's because they don't want who Jesus actually is, but also it's because the Father is not drawing them yet as a nation. Their hearts don't want God, but one day their hearts will be changed, and God will draw all Israel in. But this passage explains why so many reject Jesus or leave him. So in summary, we've seen several great truths from John 6 today. Jesus showed his divine power and compassion in the feeding of the 5,000. He showed himself more necessary and satisfying than any earthly food or thing. He also showed that those who want him must believe in him totally, wholly embracing Jesus' suffering and death as a sin sacrifice and being willing to follow being willing to follow in his footsteps in order to be with him and have eternal life. Now, what are some implications from these truths? We have about a minute, so I'll just mention a few things briefly, but please think about this for yourselves on your own. One let's learn from Philip and Andrew's failure. They had the Messiah standing right next to them. And yet they still wondered how they were going to get through that situation. Let's not forget we have a powerful and compassionate God and savior and he will provide let us be aware of the felt needs evangelistic approach felt needs idea is that we need to show people that how all their needs and desires are fulfilled in jesus If you're feeling lonely or purposelessness or you're feeling purposeless or you you feel a desire for love and acceptance just come to jesus and he'll satisfy those desires there's a problem in this approach and it's the same problem that's evident in our passage that is that some of the desires that people have are not godly desires or the way they want to see them fulfilled is not according to God's will. Actually, evangelism is a lot about showing people that they have a need that they don't recognize. You have a more important need than any loneliness or desire for healing relationships or better marriage or whatever it is. You have a more important need than that. And that is your need for Christ, your need for a savior. But God has fulfilled that need if you're willing to believe. So we do want to be careful when it comes to felt needs. We should also note how this passage emphasizes that outward success in a ministry is not determinative of a person's faithfulness. Sometimes faithful preachers and evangelists are rejected. And sometimes unfaithful preachers and evangelists have great success. This is not to say that faithful preachers don't have success too, or that unfaithful preachers don't sometimes fail. But we have to look deeper than just the surface. Got to pay attention. What are they actually saying? Is their success coming from their catering to man's flesh? Or does it come from their actually being faithful to God's word and he supernaturally works? We would prefer the latter for ourselves because that lasts. That produces actual change. Then finally, Two questions to consider privately. Why do you follow Jesus? I think everybody in this room, many listening would probably say, yeah, I follow Jesus and I praise the Lord for that. But why? Is it because you think that he'll give you what you really want? Or is it because you've come to realize that he gives you what you really need and what you've learned to want, which is himself? And have you totally eaten Jesus' flesh and his blood by faith? Have you given up everything to totally embrace him and receive eternal life with him as your master and savior? Let us heed the words from Jesus Do not work for the food which perishes, but receive and embrace the food that lasts unto eternal life. Well. That's it for today. If you have other questions or comments on this passage or this lesson, email me next week. We're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about how Jesus responded to those who corrupted the truth of God and how we should respond ourselves. Let me pray as we close. God, I thank you for this word. Jesus. Thank you for coming as truly sustaining food, truly sustaining bread, even unto eternal life. You are glad and willing to give yourself as food so that we might eat and live. Jesus, I pray that each person who hears me today will have done that and be thankful for you, revel in you as the bread of life, and share, share this bread with others so that they too might believe as you draw them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'll see you guys next week.